I wanted to question what really counts as a relationship. And if you're in a primarily in a sort of deep platonic relationship, could you maybe have sexual or romantic connections outside of that? How, what does that look like? Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hey there. Hi. How are you? I hope you're having a tremendous week so far. Uh, dear anonymous listener, wherever you are in the world. Uh, speaking of which, I'd really like to hear from you. I'm always curious about where people are listening to the podcast, where they're coming from, what your life is like. It just kind of helps me get a better sense of who's actually listening to this. And thus, hopefully I can tailor my show a little bit um, to you. And to just, you know, it's just nice having kind of reality check about who's actually listening to this like because you know you're standing I'm standing right now at my vocal booth looking at (laughs) my laptop and this kind of gray foam padding and you can kind of feel like you're speaking into the void a little bit and I know there's people out there I've been checking the download numbers Uh, I know you exist so yeah send me an email or a tweet or something and uh, let me know how you're doing and uh, let me know what you think of the show it's always great to hear from you guys, and uh, it just makes it more fun for me, actually, to, uh, to keep doing this. I am going to record this and get on my bicycle. I don't know if I mentioned this, but I've become kind of obsessed with cycling lately. I don't know if you're like that, but I, I tend to go deep. If, if I get interested in something, I kind of want to learn everything about it, and it's kind of all I can think about doing for a little while. Um, and for me, that's cycling right now. And I know, you know, I think it was the last episode or perhaps the one before, it was the one where I recorded it just after uh, Anthony Bourdain checked out. And I've had the worst year of my life uh, over the past year. And the reason I think I'm still standing uh, above everything else, I mean, to cut a long story short, I lost a couple of people who are extremely important to me. And I really think the reason I'm still standing, aside from the love and support of people around me is exercise. And again, this sounds like a really obvious point, but I think it's taken me almost 30 years to really fully understand how important and impactful and transformational exercise can be if you're dealing with any kind of trauma or pain or depression or anything like that. I mean, the whole idea about the runner's high and, and you know the high you can get from exercise, I mean, that's a thing. That's a real, tangible thing. And it's taken me way too long to, to acknowledge that. And for me, spending a long time on my bicycle every day, usually two or three hours, uh, and doing yoga regularly, for me, that's been my saving grace. I also lift weights. Um, I'm trying to stay busy and I'm trying to keep my body active because... I find without fail, I start feeling really bad and really low and, you know, less motivated. I have way less energy when I'm spending long hours in front of my computer or, you know, staying isolated 
um, away from the world and not being physically active. So I don't know where you're at in life, but I can just tell you from my own experience, thank God for cycling, thank God for exercise, and thank God for these beautiful bodies that we uh, we really have to kind of work to to maintain. I hope that doesn't sound preachy, but I just thought I'd mention that because I feel like it took me way too long to really realize how important exercise was to my mental health, and maybe it'll help you too. My guest today is a very funny woman, a very interesting woman who, uh, who wears many hats. Her name is Rosie Wilby. She's a comedian, musician, writer, and broadcaster based in London, England. As a comedian, she's performed at the Sydney Mardi Gras, the Comedy Store, the Latitude Festival, and on BBC Radio 4. As a musician, she's performed at Glastonbury, Ronnie Scott's, and on Carlton TV. She uh, has hosted a series of really fascinating one-person shows around relationships and dating and stuff. And But I think the main reason I wanted to talk to her is her new book. She just published her first book. It's called Is Monogamy Dead? Rethinking Relationships in the 21st Century. Now, before that might put you off, keep in mind that the book is, it's a, the title is a question, not a statement. It's asking, is monogamy dead? Because it seems very timely. This is an issue that I think is coming up for a lot of people. And I think we're kind of divided into two camps. Those of us who are willing to talk about it and, and, and have an open, honest discussion about it, and those people who are pretending that there is no problem with, uh, with the way we currently think about monogamy. And for many people, you know, they, there's no reason for them to question monogamy because they're in really satisfying, healthy, exciting monogamous relationships and everything's going great. But I think for the rest of us, I mean, when you look at the divorce rate and when you look at the conversations we're having around relationships in our society, I mean, it feels like something has to change. We need new language. We need some new ideas. And I think we need some, uh, some broader conceptions of monogamy. And that's the main reason I wanted to talk to Rosie. She's also the host of a very interesting podcast called The Breakup Monologues, which we'll get to later in the show. Before we begin, a quick reminder that if you're enjoying my podcast and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy a very wide-ranging, <laughs> very wide-ranging discussion with comedian, author, broadcaster, Rosie Wilby. First off, I'd love to know, you have a really interesting backstory when it comes to how you got into comedy. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Like, how did you become a stand-up? Well, <laughs> a slightly strange, circuitous route, as you say. I was a musician. I was a singer-songwriter with a band and wrote very sort of heartfelt, romantic songs about my relationships gone wrong and more. And, yeah, eventually when the band all went their separate ways... Um, many people came up to me at gigs having really enjoyed the between song chat, which actually I did more of when I did a few solo gigs, um, I guess, to kind of make up for the fact there was no band providing, you know, this big full backdrop of, of, of noise. And so, yeah, I used to tell very self-deprecating stories about what the song was about or kind of make fun of the fact that many of my songs were a bit bleak, <laughs> as, as songwriters often are a little bit dark and depressive, aren't they? Um, so I would make fun of myself a little bit um, in a very self-deprecating way, and that 
eventually led people to say, you know what, you should you should have a go at comedy. Um, because although the songs were not comedy songs, people were really laughing at the things that I said in between. So, yes, I entered a few comedy competitions. Um, the, there's some comedy contests here in the UK, in London. Um, so you think you're funny, funny women, laughing horse. Um, <laughs> laughing horse is a funny one. There's another one called amused moose. Lots of strange animals. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I kind of got to the latter stages of all those competitions about 10 years ago and then, yeah, started getting regular work in the comedy clubs and comedy nights. I mean, there's there's such a kind of diversity of different type of comedy nights here in London and I'm sure it's, it's the same in big cities all around the world when I have occasionally done performances in L.A. or New York. Um, you know, there are comedy nights that are perhaps... Um, not like your kind of very typical Friday night, Saturday night um, comedy nights. There are there are gay comedy nights here. There are um, women only bills. There are, you know, comedy nights that have a particular feel. There are literary comedy nights. There are a bit of a mix of a literary salon and a comedy night. Um, there are themed comedy nights where everyone's talking about a particular theme. So there's there's so many different niches where different people can fit in. And I suppose I wouldn't have necessarily thought of myself as a stand-up comic in a very old school um, sense. You know, obviously we have this kind of very male picture of a stand-up comedian from, you know, a couple of decades or so ago. Um, and in fact, there's a, been a really interesting film released here just recently called Funny Cow, um, where the actress Maxine Peake plays a female comic in the very sort of working class male um, comedy comedy clubs and kind of working men's clubs. So we, we have a certain idea of a of a comedian, which I think still stands, even though we have lots of women doing it now. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily have thought of comedy as the right the right thing for me as a as a kind of sensitive singer songwriter. But I've found different types of of comedy nights. So from one uh, earnest singer songwriter type to another, um, is that dream? over for you I'm, I'm i'm i was very curious about that because well just um personally speaking i'm a creative person with a lot of different interests and i've always found it difficult to sort of narrow those down and pursue one thing at a time it's just kind of the way i'm wired i mean yes. what was that decision like when you i mean did you kind of decide enough with the music i'm going to pursue comedy full-time or what, what was that process like um i don't know whether i don't know whether conscious decision would be the right way to to put it, it was more of a, a gradual transition and um, just just the realities of actually this is where the momentum is, this is where I'm making some money. Um, when I was performing with a band, um, you know, we would get paid gigs, but then you're splitting the money around lots of people. So I just think the realities of, I mean, for me, being a creative person, wasn't something I wanted to do as a, as a hobby alongside a normal job. Many people do that so that they have the creative freedom of of not needing to earn money from it and just doing creatively whatever they want. But I, I want to sort of um, get paid for it in some way. I sort of see that as some kind of affirmation that if it's your job that you're being paid for, there's some kind of recognition that you're doing it to a professional standard in, in some way, even if it's not everybody's bag and there's some reviewers that don't like it. Um uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to get paid. So I, I guess, you know, um, there was just a kind of practical decision on, on in that sense that actually there was there was some interest in in promoters, venues kind of booking me and paying me to do 
my comedy shows. I mean, that said, the you know, some of my comedy shows have a sort of musical element. Um, I mean, one of them looked back at my music career in quite a lighthearted way and um, uh, kind of had some of my old photos from the band. It was kind of called How Not to Make It in Britpop. Um, so I used to perform some of my old songs as part of that show which meant that some people went back and rediscovered my very old ancient album. Um, so that was nice. Um, and then other songs that have not directly had my own music in them have had, um, have had a strong, a strong kind of soundtrack running through them of, of music that I love. So I feel that music is there in a, in a sense. And in my book that I published last year, um, that, had a whole section that was set against the backdrop of my career as a musician um and again music even in other sections of the book music is is often referenced um in terms of love and relationships because of course music really can enhance <laughs> in good and bad ways how we are feeling so we always have kind of breakup songs or or songs that we listen to when we get together with people. So there's definitely a lot of references to music throughout a lot of the work that I do. Does what you're doing now in terms of um, comedy and writing and podcasting, does that scratch the same itch that writing, performing, recording your own, your own music did? I, well, maybe, I think so. I mean, it scratches a different itch. Um, but I think the key thing is connection. Um, with with people with an audience and so there's something very special about making a room full of people laugh um, I do strive in my solo comedy shows as in the sort of hour-long shows I might do at the Edinburgh Fringe or at festivals around the world as opposed to when you do a club set of 10 minutes 15 minutes or 20 minutes um, I think in those longer shows I would strive to have some emotional terrain as well as just the you know, gag, 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 let's make people laugh. Um, I try to have some kind of depth and some variety and nuance in those shows, um, which is not always easy to achieve because um, people may be expecting you to be funny throughout um, and not go off into a sort of emotional detour. But a lot of audiences really like that as well. So I think it's not so much about singing live which was lovely and wonderful but it's about being able to explore emotions um and i think if you do if you use comedy and humor cleverly i think you can you can do that um but it, it's an interesting there, there are subtle differences between the different types of of art forms i think in the book i was i was creatively quite satisfied um because i could explore kind of dark stuff and quite deep stuff as well as look at things through a humorous lens that there's a lot of quite vulnerable stuff as well um which perhaps you can't always do on stage in comedy or at least it, it's difficult to pull off uh, in a shorter set so I, th I think i think the book was quite creatively rewarding i mean it was very challenging in other ways when i sort of started to learn about how the publishing industry works which is so different from how comedy and music industries work but um yeah, creatively, it was a very rewarding process. And the book is, is Monogamy Dead? That is the title of the book. Well done for getting it right. It is a question. <laughs> is, how I say that, I say that not completely um, joking. Is Monogamy Dead? Because so many people 
have interviewed interviewed me about it and said that um, Rosie's book is called Monogamy is Dead, um, as if I'm kind of making a statement, whereas actually I'm I'm asking a question. That would be a very different book. It would indeed. Um, I mean, I have been through a phase of thinking maybe monogamy is dead, but I've come around to thinking actually it's alive and well, but we needed to sort of re reevaluate, redefine monogamy for modern times and for modern living. Uh, so, yeah, I've really come on quite a, a journey in terms of what I think about, think about monogamy. But it's, yeah, it's interesting how many people kind of make an assumption that if you're questioning monogamy, then you must be thinking that it's um, completely out of date or completely not fit for purpose. And I think perhaps our old version of it maybe is, and I think we do need to think about our language around relationships and how conscious we are in relationships and and really look at those skills and develop those. But um, yeah, monogamy as an actual concept I think is is alive, but I think we need to um, maybe learn about how we can be monogamous from people who are not being monogamous, because in actual fact, the people I interviewed who were opening up their relationships, who were polyamorous, they were actually, in many cases, communicating much, much more about honesty, about respect, about consent, about compassion, about how to really, really talk and really open up and be vulnerable in relationships and sort of talk about their deepest desires and fears and secrets. Whereas, of course, many of us who've been in monogamous relationships um, have, yeah, perhaps perhaps been uh, the keepers of many, many secrets. Yeah. I, I want to get more into the book in a minute. But first off, sure. where where did this interest in relationships and dating and sexuality where did that come from i mean like for me for example i was growing up and i i I think i've always kind of been interested in these topics like was the same true for you um yes and no i think uh when i came out as gay in my sort of late teens obviously the um the ideas around sexuality and sexual orientation were of huge interest to me because I realised that I was gay um, sort of during my late teens in the late 1980s, which was an incredibly homophobic time. We had Margaret Thatcher uh, in, uh, installed as prime minister in the UK, and uh, she was not a fan of the gays. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, she was a big fan of sort of family values in a very old school traditional sense of family values. Um, so it was um, it was interesting times. Um, so I think for me, I wanted to understand why some people were gay, what that meant. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a mum who was very open-minded and liberal about these things at a time when not everybody's parents would have been. Um, I mean, I even do some jokes about how... Uh, how when I came out to her, she sort of tried to tell me something about one of her, her and one of her close female friends, you know, when they used to go on holiday together before she got married. <laughs> and, you know, it was one of those like, oh, no, you don't want to hear about your parents <laughs> kind of having, maybe having had same-sex flings or even having a sexuality or, or anything. Um, so, yeah. Um, Can I just pause I, you for I, one I, moment? Yes, I mean, because this is this is 
really interesting to me and I want to understand this better. And maybe this is an obvious point, but I mean, I'm straight. Um, and so in a certain sense, I can't really imagine growing up and having this feeling that who you're attracted to, the leader of your country kind of is suggesting that there's something wrong with that or unnatural. I mean, that must be really yeah. confusing. Yes, it's really tough. I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, I obviously single her out because she was such a, such a kind of prevalent figure in our country's culture when I was a teenager. So you kind of felt like if this person who seemed so powerful and so omnipresent was, was saying something was wrong, that that felt like that was kind of a all encompassing message. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really filtered down into kind of schools, obviously churches and religion and, and many of my my friends at school who had uh, parents who were more conservative or, or more religious and so on, um, you know, who would have kind of, I mean, many of these people, of course, completely have changed their minds now as they've got older and, and laws have changed in this country and indeed are changing in many places around the world. So I think um, people, you know, it's not like these were bad people who were like, oh, you know, gay people are sinners and you know that they were just sort of repeating what they had heard from previous generations and it, it was just something that they had been told was was the way things were that, that it wasn't right um so so yeah it's very hard to to kind of fight it against that but then i think even as a smaller child I always kind of enjoyed a sense of rebellion. I think there was something quite exciting about being different and not being the same as everyone else. So whilst there was a sense of potential isolation and feeling like a weirdo or not right in some way, there was also this kind of exciting sense of, of doing something different to everyone else. And I had a strong sense always that... Um, once I got to London, I would find other people, other like-minded people, and find some kind of sense of of things being okay in terms of being gay, at least. And that was certainly true when I, I moved to London in the early 1990s. And, of course, there was a big gay culture and gay community, and that was a really strong kind of sense of family. And it was actually, in many ways, a really wonderful time to be gay because there were parties and clubs and kind of lots of community activities, book groups and theatre groups and activism groups. And you really felt part of something to be gay then in, in a big city. Um, whereas, of course, now it's that a lot of that has fragmented and dissolved. And I write about this a bit in the book and how that's shaped my my kind of sense of family and community um, and how in some ways it's a little bit heartbreaking. There's almost a sense of loss that gay people, now we have some equal rights and we can get married like straight people do. Um, the fact that everybody's rushing to do that, it's kind of breaking up some of the big gay family and big sense of community and really looking after one another in the face of prejudice that we had before as this real ultimate paradox of progress having some kind of quite sad side effects where we've lost something quite quite precious where we'd 
kind of built our own sense of family and friendship and loyalty that was really quite special. That's that's fascinating. I hadn't so you, the family unit is kind of challenging Pride Month or, or something like that. Well, almost, but Pride, but kind of not just Pride Month, but Pride, the the sense of, of Pride and the sense of family and community that that the LGBT or queer community, or I mean, kind of we didn't really use words like queer like a couple of decades or so ago. It was kind of lesbian and gay. We were. You know, we were inclusive of bisexual and transgender people, but perhaps not as consciously as we might be now. Um, so, yeah, there, there was this real sense of of something, of togetherness that we've lost a tiny bit now. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, and and I, I think obviously this is um, particularly heartbreaking for you uh, and your involvement in the gay community. But I mean, I think the just the breakdown of community in general in the West is, is really striking to me. Um, yeah. You know, everywhere I, I go, I feel that way. Yeah. I think it's such a, um, an individualistic age now with social media and selfies and, you know, it is the age of narcissism, isn't it? Um, and obviously there are, there are good elements of social media and, and the digital, I mean, we can talk to each other easily now. Um, but, I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, I think there's there's something about human connection that, that is slipping through our fingers a little bit. It's irreplaceable, that feeling of actually sharing a space with someone, looking into their eyes, you know, watching their micro movements and, and, you know, just sharing that physical space. There's something truly irreplaceable about that. But that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> um, I, but I cut you off earlier. I was so you said you were, you started looking more into relationships and psychology and sex and dating. You said something to the effect you were you were trying to figure out like why are some people gay, why are some people not? Is that kind of the genesis of this this interest for you then? Well, I, that was partly an, a doorway opening and partly a um, that was an element of my my first show, my first comedy show that I did about love and relationships was called The Science of Sex a few years ago, which turned into a really popular show that I often revive and get asked to perform again. Um, and I, I've mostly performed it in the UK, but I did perform it in New York at a queer arts festival called Fresh Fruit. And that was lots of fun. <laughs> so um, many good names. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a key part of that show was was looking at why people have a certain sexual orientation I was quite interested to understand that um, but really it was also about why we might be uh, the more universal questions of why we might be attracted to one person or another why we might feel like some of this passion fizzles out in the later stages of a relationship why we go into a sort of different phase of love um, why we seem to only recognize the very heady early stages of love as romantic love you know what what messages the media have given us about romantic love so there were a lot of messages in in that first show and the origins of our sexual orientation were just a part of it but th this was all a kind of a way in and I think the key thing was the relationship that I was in when I started comedy was um uh, I mean, very beautiful in its uh, in its origins, um, and and very kind of loving and romantic, but actually deeply troubled and challenged by well, initially by 
her um, family not knowing that she was gay and that that was incredibly challenging. So it's back to kind of obviously homophobia and shame around homosexuality and so on. Um, and um, and also just just kind of just the challenges of two people kind of meshing together perhaps when they've had this kind of really romantic beginning that's been unreal of how to try and have a real relationship um and this this relationship did actually in the end kind of on and off um <laughs> via a roller coaster route kind of last maybe five years but um it sort of was was quite a difficult ending um and it had been quite a difficult um you know a difficult relationship along along the way at, at certain points but not because you know, not because anyone is to blame and is a bad person or anything like that, but just because sometimes relationships are incredibly challenging and difficult. And I wanted to understand why this relationship wasn't working, I suppose, and then ultimately understand why it had ended. And, you know, it took many years to actually my final part of my trilogy of shows that I toured about love and relationships was called The Conscious Uncoupling and was about breakups. And so I finally wrote about that breakup kind of five years on um, from receiving, um, well, initially sort of being dumped by email. So receiving the breakup email. <laughs> I know. Oof. I know. And But now that's kind of more common that people get broken up with by digital means um but it's but after yeah, five still, years yeah i know oof. i know i'm sorry about that yeah oh well it's you know it's uh, i think through writing about it i've been able to process things much much more um and it you know i think it is creativity can be incredibly cathartic speaking of uh catharsis and healing um get as personal or not as you want but how did you power through that breakup I mean what what got you through that that must have been challenging to say the least oh yeah really 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 challenging but I think ultimately creativity and writing and like I say I didn't really visit the breakup in in my work until a little while later but yeah I think performing um is a real kind of solve for loneliness um or feeling not right in the world because I think performing connects you. I think there's, a, largely speaking, I found the bonds between comedians, particularly fellow female comedians on the circuit. Those bonds are really good. Like there'll be people that you don't gig with for a while, and then you see them again, and, and you just have a real giggle or a hug backstage, and you say, "Oh God, I'm having a lousy time. I got dumped," and it's like, "Oh, how are you?" Oh, you know. So that there's a generally a nice camaraderie. There are some people who are, you know, pains in the bum but um mostly mostly people are really our fellow performers are really nice and down to earth and good people and i think comedians have come often from the perspective of being in some way outcasts or, or feeling like the weird one at school so i think actually we kind of understand one another quite well um so i think performing really was a driver to getting through that um in the end and, and writing and expressing myself and finding ways of talking about love and heartache and heartbreak. And I mean, 
when I did do the show eventually about the breakup, so many people came to me afterwards and said, oh, it's so good to talk about this stuff. We don't talk about it enough. And, um, you know, it's helped me think about my breakup. It's helped me communicate with my ex. There was one day I did the show and some uh, I asked, I happened to ask a girl how she knew about the show and why she'd come along. And she said, oh, my ex came last night. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So what what did that show entail? Um, what what was your take? Was this more of like a storyline, or was this about the science behind breaks up breakups? Um, that show that show was kind of like a storytelling show, but there were the visits of three ghosts in it of our romantic past, present, and future, with sort of slightly spoofy bits of science, kind of like warnings about the dangers of nostalgia and looking back with really rose-tinted glasses, um, but also the conflicts between real love and, and our sense of what romantic love perhaps should be and what real relationships are. Um, and then kind of with, with a sort of spoofy warning about where we could go in the future if um, our kind of the pace at which we kind of reject people on Tinder and dating apps kind of continued, you know, it could be this... Um, you know, like we were sort of suggesting, we kind of become this really soulless society. So, so kind of my ghost of the future had come from this terrible place where love was quite literally a battlefield, and she sort of had a, a little sword and shield. Pat Benatar <laughs> uh, for the win. <laughs> Isn't that amazing, though? Like, why why do we do that? The the rose colored glasses bit because it's true. You break up with someone. And then a month or two later, all you can remember is the good times and, you know, that stroll in the park and how pretty they looked in that dress and blah, 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 blah. I, I was talking to someone the other day who's going through a breakup uh, and they were pretty fresh out of the relationship. And so they, they still remember all the nasty bits. And I said, write it down, record some kind of audio diary, like record this because you'll forget. You know, like It's amazing. I don't know why we do that. Yeah, yeah we do. It's true. Um yeah I think um I mean in a way it's nice ultimately if you are when you are ultimately feeling over it it's quite nice to remember the good stuff isn't yeah, it yeah ultimately being the key word there <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. yeah yeah so what what goes into like a one person show like that I mean that there must be just a tremendous amount of writing and planning and work and do you, do you write it like almost like you'd write a book or something like that in terms of structuring it very clearly or or how how does that work I think with that show I did um and what's interesting is the kind of storytelling sections of that show that were kind of I I had alternating timelines so I would go between two different uh, positions on the stage so you would already know at the beginning of the show that the relationship had ended because I would be talking about being dumped by email and the audience would really be with me and like oh no and then I'd go to the other side of the stage where the lighting would subtly change and I would be sit down and read from a storybook about the beginnings of the relationship and there would be lovely music playing um, and so you would kind of get this sense of of things sounding wonderfully romantic, but of course being very bittersweet because you know it's going to end. Um, so that show was very much written with a word-for-word -word script, but not all of my more comedic shows would be written in that way because you don't want to sound like you're delivering a monologue when you're doing a more stand-up-y show. That would tend to have more keywords and, and structure. Um, in a, I often draw a diagram for those kind of shows. Um, 
So, yeah. What What's opening night like for a show like that? I mean, are you nervous? Because you put all this work into something and you're about to unleash it on the world and there's a chance that it could, you know, it could go go south. I mean, what's that like? Are there yeah. a lot of nerves? <laughs> what comedians tend to do is preview shows which generally would be be quite intimate and would be cheaper tickets and would be with a bit of a, you know, a kind of proviso that, look, this is a work in development. It's not the finished article yet. Although sometimes those are my favourite shows um, and actually I'll, I'll often love the show the most when it's brand new. Um, but, yeah, you, I think because you have those early shows as as kind of previews, perhaps that eases the stress a tiny bit because you know that, you know, if you want to say no reviewers at, at the first show, you can do that and you can, yeah, kind of just invite a, a special audience of friends and, and make it, or you might, I mean, what some people do now is kind of preview shows in their own homes or other people's homes, um, like kind of a lounge gig. Um, so, yeah, you can make it more kind of comfortable than a big <laughs> premiere. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, well, as long as we're on this topic, though, I, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to comedy because it's just one of my favorite things to, to learn about. When you're first starting out as a stand-up, like when you first start going on stage with like the idea not to make music, but I'm going to try to make these people laugh for five or ten minutes, was there a big adjustment there? Were you nervous? Or because you had a, a ton of experience on stage as a musician, were you less nervous? I guess less nervous, but um, of course it's nerve-wracking. I mean, I did do some of the gigs where, like everyone does, where you completely die and... <laughs> like oh my god what's happening um but I think I was more nervous as a musician because I think as a musician it felt like there was more jeopardy it felt like more could go wrong like if the sound engineer didn't make you sound nice or um I don't know I it's strange isn't it because so much can go wrong with comedy but I I think because I'd, I'd been I become more resilient by doing a, a fair amount of performance as a musician. And I think going on a stage in front of people didn't terrify me too much. So I thought I would always have a strategy, I think. I would always have something to fall back on, even if it was just chatting to the audience and, and ad-libbing from what they were saying. When you're on stage, <clears throat> excuse me, performing stand-up, are you trying to actively read the audience? Like, are you looking for to make eye contact? Are you looking to see how certain people react to different things? Because I think I can re relate to this a little bit. I'm a DJ, so I, I really try to read the audience when I'm playing and try to sometimes tailor what I'm doing to try to make more people dance and have, you know, try to help people have a better time. What are you, what are you doing on stage? And is that different than being the, uh, the earnest singer-songwriter, so to speak? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I mean, that said, I generally do have a set list of what I'm going to do at comedy night because normally you have a set time. And so if you go off tangent completely, then you sort of lose track of how long you've done <laughs> and you have to have a sneaky glance at your watch or something. Um, but um, yeah, even if I'm sticking to a fairly known set list, um, of course, you're going to make it sound spontaneous. And of course, you're going to look at certain people in the audience and gauge who's really enjoying 
it and keep checking in with them and keep eye contact with them regularly um, and also try and engage some of the other people who aren't initially laughing as much, try and think, why is that person not engaging and, and kind of pull them in, I guess. Um, but I'm often drawn to the people in the audience who are really enjoying it because they their, their energy usually is infectious and spreads around the room anyway. Right. What about your writing process? I mean, do you just kind of, does something funny happen or you just get a random thought and you write it down and you try to pick it apart later? Or, or what's that like? Do you Or do you sit down and be like, I'm going to come up with, you know, five minutes of material now or something? No, I've never liked doing that for stand-up material. I think it was much more like that with the book because with the book, you've got to write 70,000 words. So <laughs> it's just a different thing. Um, even though that said, I didn't like sitting down at the computer I kind of wrote the opening chapters actually on a um, longhand on a pad out in the park and the fresh air and kind of being outside and people and some kind of ambience and atmosphere um, I think was helpful um, but yeah I think comedy initially when I just used to do five minutes ten minutes it would be chatting to a friend and saying a funny thing happened and trying to get a response from one of my friends who's a very funny person who's done a little bit of stand-up herself um, and trying to just gauge what could work on stage. Um, but, um, yeah, and then just sort of going through it in my head, I used to kind of go through little kind of pilot routines when I you know just silently in my head when I was out for a run or if I was going swimming or doing some kind of exercise and movement I think movement makes the brain work as well so I think I would think of little um kind of responses to to you know to a, a, a situation that I would be talking about then I would think of a punchline or a ridiculous response or reaction so yeah, although I, I think um, yeah, I think writing now is a bit different because my shows have evolved into slightly more storytelling-y kind of shows and obviously writing articles and writing the books. So that is more a kind of sitting down and being very disciplined. Hmm. So why don't you tell me about, a little bit about the book? Why, why did you write Is Monogamy Dead? Um, why subject yourself to the torture of writing a book? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a long slog for sure. Um, why, where did that come from? Well, the Is Monogamy Dead was the middle part of my trilogy about love and relationships. I've, I've mentioned the other two, the, the two bookends of that trilogy. Um, and it was my Edinburgh show in 2013. Um, and at that stage I was in a relationship with someone that I am still very good friends with, but we had what was to me quite a confusing relationship because um, to me it seemed more like a really, really awesome friendship. I mean, of course, we had a sexual and romantic element, but that didn't kind of burn as, as brightly or as strongly as it maybe had done in some other previous relationships. I mean, perhaps with hindsight that maybe was a good thing because, of course, sometimes if you have really, really intense passion, you also have intense drama and conflict um, and, and that can often go hand in hand with tons of arguments. So it's finding that right balance. But for me, the balance was slightly off and it was more like a really deep friendship. So I wanted to question what really counts as a relationship. And if you're in a primarily in a sort of deep platonic relationship, could you maybe have sexual or romantic connections outside of that? 
how what does that look like and I started reading interesting books about non-monogamy about different types of relationships about thinking about relationships differently in alternative ways um and going on a quest to find answers for myself I think my shows are often a personal quest um that then becomes broader so I interviewed tons of my friends who it turned out were maybe having open relationships or or different types of relationships and finding out how how that could work the main the main knock against open relationships is everyone says, well, it's a hell of a lot of work. Um, I mean, is that kind of the the did you encounter that a lot when you talk to these people? Yes, sometimes for sure, there's a lot of time management. I mean, what I love about the poly community is there's a there's tons of language to um, uh, kind of deal with the complexities of that life. They've invented their own new language. Like you can say, if you've reached your threshold of partners, you can say you're polysaturated. <laughs> That's great. I haven't heard that before. It's good, isn't it? That's really nice. Um, so it's true. It is a lot of work, but I think all relationships are work. And I think that the problem with where I was at with monogamy, I think many of me and my peers who were kind of serial monogamists who were breaking up and then getting together and breaking up and getting together and we're going through this quite tiresome pattern. Um, I think we were trying to kind of slack off doing the work that I think is really the same, whether you're in an open relationship or in an exclusive monogamous relationship. I think the work is still critical um, and I don't think there's any shirking around that. I think, I, yeah. I think this is a really important point. What, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you mean by the work? Well, I just mean, well, probably primarily the work on yourself and, and working out who you are in a relationship, what you need, what you want, how to communicate that, what you have to offer and bring to another human being. I think sometimes we just launch into relationships thinking, well, we have such an amazing connection that all my problems will be solved, all their problems will be solved everything will be brilliant and amazing and it is for a few weeks but then um you realize that actually they've got a ton of hang-ups or you've still got a ton of hang-ups about your childhood or well that's cliche but sometimes it's the case um but or about previous relationships or about thing about your career frustrations there might be a ton of things that are unresolved that comes in as baggage and that starts to you know, starts to wear away at this bond that you've created with a partner. So, what, so I think it's... Sorry, go on. No, I, I just think it's about dealing with your own stuff um, and then dealing with stuff together as well. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you in monogamy these days, just personally? Yeah, personally, I mean, I'm in a monogamous relationship now, but I think monogamy for me is quite redefined. No, I don't think, no, it's, it's a really healthy, alive, lovely, happy relationship. But I think I had to go through this journey of sort of looking at some of the polyamorous values, if you like, of compassion and communication to look at how I could actually communicate to that level in a monogamous relationship. Um, and I think the, the level of communication about who you are, about what you're looking for, about the things that you might find challenging your partner that you love them anyway, but it's like, actually, you know, you're being quite difficult today or, you know, what's up? You're being, you know, um, I think we need to be able to communicate freely 
Um, and for me, I hadn't been very good at that before. So I think it, um, I think talking to people who are non-monogamous gave me the keys to, to be monogamous, which is interesting. That's very interesting. And when you talk about improving your communication, do you just mean being more honest about your needs, about what you don't want, about, you know, what, what do you mean by that? Being more present somehow. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard to explain it, but, but yeah, being, being more present, being more aware of of some of the things I, I kind of haven't liked before, but just had tolerated and, and kept quiet about, you know. Hmm. So honesty, really. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the breakup monologues. So, yes, after the, um, the solo show that I did about love and relationships and after so many people coming to speak to me and or emailing me and saying they'd enjoyed that, it seemed to make sense to open up to my other performer friends, uh, bringing me their stories and talking to me in a kind of, well, a mixture of um, therapy session, comedy gig. Um, uh, it's now a podcast. It started off as a, a, a little live event. Um, but now it's a regular monthly podcast, the Breakup Monologues, where I have two or three guests and um, we sort of evolved from people coming with their specific breakup stories, like, oh, my God, this crazy thing happened. I did this crazy thing when my relationship ended um, to more general themes, like thinking about our language around breakups and relationships, things like ghosting and, you know, all these different behaviors, conscious uncoupling, what we think of that. Divorce parties, are they a good idea or is it just insane? Um, so, so, yeah, it's become a really fun podcast to do. Um, and I actually recorded two live event, uh, live episodes in front of an audience just um, a week or so ago, so they will be released soon. What have you learned about breakups since you began this project? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that there are always two sides to the story. Obviously, in my book, I present my own version of events, but I've made a huge effort to be responsible to, you know, and um, in the way that I represent other people involved in, in previous relationships that I'm talking about. Um, I mean, we actually had a really interesting case here in London just recently where um, a comedian, a female comedian, was being sued by her ex-husband for talking about him on stage. Whoa. So, yeah, I know. So I think we have to have a kind of consciousness about how we talk about other people but I think comedy has been a forum where we can talk very honestly about pressed relationships about relationships gone wrong about you know sometimes our own bad behaviors or other people's but I think what's been universal is that particularly um I've had mostly female guests although we've had some wonderful men on as well um I think what's been universal is actually we've tended to be able to kind of hold our hands up to our own behaviors rather than pointing the finger and going oh my ex was terrible you know and kind of saying god I was a complete lunatic I, I can't believe I behave like that so I think actually a kind of self-awareness has been a universal element yeah we are the common denominator in all of our relationships for sure sometimes it takes a while for us to learn that so what what are the main 
I mean, you're, you're, again, uh, your website's a little overwhelming. Like, you do a lot of stuff, <laughs> and you've done a lot of stuff. Um, as you speak to me today, at this period in your life, what are the main sort of questions that are, that are driving you? Like, what are you trying to figure out right now? Like, what, what's, what's the most inspiring, exciting issues, questions that you're working around right now, would you say? Um, I, I do a talk um, about the book that I sort of tour around um, venues and festivals and stuff. And, um, I mean, people always ask really fascinating questions, but I think a lot of it often comes back to this key idea about what is a relationship, what is love, and the fact that our language around love is so limiting. Um, you know, we say, I love you, and it could mean so many different things I mean I kind of you know I joke in one of my shows I love chocolate and I love my girlfriend and one of those is an insatiable craving that never goes away one of those is how I feel about my girlfriend um, <laughs> but you know it's just this really ambiguous kind of word so I think I have a bit of a um I, I kind of push the idea of people maybe inventing their own new language just as the polyamory community have done um and um you know, if there's not a word for something, we can't talk about it. So let's make more words. And we've now got social media, you know, with the power of hashtags, you can make something a new buzz phrase really easily. Well, as long as we're talking about language, before I let you go, you talk about, uh, you mentioned conscious uncoupling. Yeah. And I think about a very pretentious Gwyneth Paltrow. But, of course do. but yeah, like most people, I, I haven't looked into this phrase enough and I'm still a little bit unclear about how that's different from a breakup. Can you give me any insight into that? Well, you know, much as I, like many people, don't um, do everything that Gwyneth Paltrow says, um, <laughs> you know, uh, she she's right when she says that actually it's a very right kind of ethical and compassionate way of breaking up and retaining and celebrating some of the good things about what you had with that person, the sense of family and togetherness and friendship that you shared. And I suppose I've had to some extent a conscious uncoupling with the partner that I was with for the majority of the narrative in the book. Um, we are still friends, um, very much so. Um, so I think... Um, I think it's a great idea. And of course, it wasn't even Gwyneth who invented it. Um, you know, there's a, an author and therapist, Catherine, um, who I've been in touch with, who actually uh, sort of first first coined the phrase. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the idea behind this sort of slightly pretentious phrase that sounds a bit, a little bit woo-woo, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine would say, um, you know, there's, there's this great idea of, of actually still wanting to know that person and, and have them in your life and have them as part of your family. Yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, I'm, I can get behind that 100% because I think it's very odd that we, we call relationships that didn't work out failed relationships or a failed marriage when it can be, you know, one or two or three or ten of the most important years of your life in which you learned innumerable lessons and became, you know, you both helped your, each other become way better versions of yourself. I mean, calling it a failed project seems insane. So I should do more research about that because I, I think, yeah, you're right. I think I, I perhaps I, um, I was a bit uh, snotty, but I didn't mean to be. But um, yeah, when you put it like that, I can get it behind it 100%. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
Rosie, this was a, a really pleasure talking to you today, and thank you for tolerating my innumerable questions about comedy and being a comedian, but this stuff is very interesting to me. Um, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Um, well, I, I really love Twitter, especially. Um, my Twitter handle is at Rosie Wilby, which is R-O-S-I-E-W-I-L-B-Y. Um, I'm also on Facebook, um, and um, I have a website, um, rosiewilby.com is um, not completely current, but there's a lot of my old work on there, and there's also uh, rosiewilbynews.blogspot.co.uk that has the latest kind of updates about all the things that are going on, and gig lists and so on. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear from people if they're on Twitter. That That's um, one of the main ones that I use. Uh, but obviously you can buy the book on Amazon. You can download the, the podcast. The book is called? The book is called Is Monogamy Dead?, um, and that that is available. It's um, paperback, Kindle, and audiobook, which I narrated. Um, and also, um, the podcast is available free on iTunes. The podcast is called The Breakup Monologues. The Breakup Monologues, yes. yes. Brilliant. Well, Rosie, thank you so much for your time today. This was great. Thank you. There you have it. I hope you uh, enjoyed that conversation. I hope it wasn't too scattered for you. I know we kind of bounced around a lot. And needless to say, I am still learning how to interview. I'm always trying to get better. But one thing I've been experimenting with, in, in particularly in podcast interviews lately, is following my gut a little more. I mean, when I interview someone, I'll have a list of questions and I will try, you know, they'll, they'll, there will be certain questions that I really, really need to get to that I feel are really important and uh, that are just kind of essential for me to get to. But often it's a lot more fun for me when I, when I find, when I kind of just listen to my intuition and be okay with the conversation veering in directions that I didn't anticipate. I find that often makes for a better interview. I've been inspired, I guess, by you know, one of the masters of this, uh, Mr. Joe Rogan who hosts one of the best podcasts in the world, The Joe Rogan Experience. And they're often three hours long, if you're not familiar with, with the show. They're often three or four hours long, and they veer in all kinds of really interesting directions. And he's a master at bringing things out of people that perhaps, you know, they're, they're not often um, open to talking about, or they're not often uh, used to talking about it. So I've been trying to get out of my own way a little bit and listen to my gut a little more. And uh, I hope you're okay with that. I note before I let you go that if you want to learn more about Rosie and her work or you want links to anything we discussed in today's episode, please go to zfstockhill.com slash Rosie. Or if you can't remember that, just go to humansinlove.com and that'll take you to the podcast website where you can find show notes and my email list and uh, everything we talked about in today's episode. Again, before I let you go, if you haven't done so already, please take 21.3 seconds out of your day be sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, my friends. And before I let you go, remember that life is short. So be sure to get outside at some point this week, take in the beautiful sun, take in the beautiful nature, take in the beautiful world around you. I will talk to you next Tuesday. Tuesday.